despite the old terminology, things about class matter. Those who earn and there are those who own. Hello, Dan O'Neill here and welcome to the SIP2 College podcast. We have loads of episodes of the SIP2 College podcast now online and you can listen to them on the podcast app on your iPhone. If you use Android phone, you can listen to it on the Google podcast app. You can check it out on Acast or you can listen to it on SoundCloud or on the sip2college.ie website. Pretty much anywhere that you pick up your podcasts, you can find us. Recently, I visited the Kemi School of Business, which is a school in the University of Limerick named after a well-known trade unionist and activist, Jim Kemi. I met with Professor Tony Dundon to discuss issues such as the future world of work, automation, legislation, and what HR experts describe as talent management. Hello, my name's Tony Dundon. I'm a professor of employment relations and HRM in the Kemi Business School at Limerick, and I'm also a professor at the Work and Equalities Institute in the University of Manchester. Uh, I started life as an apprentice printer when I left school. Um, I became a union rep, uh, a shop steward, probably because I was often in trouble. And the reason of becoming a union rep was it gave me the legitimacy to argue back with managers who had authority. But through that process, that got me engaged in education. So I would have started and participated in what's probably a level six education programme that you might find in the likes of SIP2 and the SIP2 College. That education, that training and awareness gave me an entirely different look on life and the activities of being a union representative at the time. So I started to realise that in studying economics, for example, economics wasn't explaining things properly to me because I'd got this grassroots grasp of what goes on in a workplace and the orthodoxy of things like supply and demands that was part of the conventional education programme was assuming that humans or individuals were some sort of rational, self-interested being. And education exposed me to the idea that, well, not all humans do operate like that. And in fact, it's this neoclassical economic view of the likes of Frederick von Hayek who create the notion of a free market to simply suppress the human instinct, which is more collective and collaborative. So through that trade union education, uh, you start to realise that work becomes evidently seen as a source of inequality in life. And inequalities in society affect how work and employment is organised. So from that trade union education, I then went on and studied a, you know, a bit higher and started to do a degree and things like sociology and Weber and notions of bureaucracy. And I often remember a, a sociologist that always struck in my mind as Wright Mills. What Wright Mills spoke about was an idea of a sociological imagination. Firstly, is a formal rationality. So that's about what markets are. That's about supply and demand. But that's not the complete story of sociological imagination. There is, in addition, a value rationality. So the values create a judgment about what is good or not good in society. So private values become a public concern. Can you tell me about the aims of the um, Work and Equality Institute? Give me a background to that. What, what does it do? So the Work and Equalities Institute, um, it's housed 
was at the University of Manchester. Um, it's an international institute. It's collaborators all around the world. There's a recent partnership with CRIMT, which is in Canada, uh, a similar uh, employment and industrial relations institute. So the WEI has a number of themes, one of which is its purposeful aim is to promote good work and better employment. So its themes are around issues of regulation and voice, inequalities in the life course, issues of ageing, fair treatment at work, and the future of work and business transformations, including technology and automation. So it's a number of scholars, mostly at Manchester, but a number of associates like myself, uh, who are international collaborators, looking at different areas of research, employment equalities and inequalities. Okay, and what kind of projects are you focusing on at the moment? So there's a number that sort of dovetail in and out. There's one with Aristea that we're looking at women professional footballers. So we're looking at data that colleagues at Manchester have collected. So terms, issues like fair pay, access to voice for professional footballers, that's not really high in the media or in any attention. And And it's an international project. It sort of looks at the data that you don't see in the headlines of premiership professional footballers these are professional footballers who work hard some of them double job some of their pay is not that great their opportunities for voice their issues of discrimination of equalities of fair treatment um, there's issues of racism of you know gender discrimination all of these perpetuate professional footballers and we're looking at how the professional footballers associations represent professional footballers how you know the footballers trade unions are arguing the case and representing the voice in different countries so the probably the 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 overarching sort of research project is issues of voice and social dialogue so there's research around decent work and connecting to the ILO's agenda of decent work of trade unions in civil society and how trade unions are, are changing and adapting their form and structure For instance, the independent workers of Great Britain who are looking at the gig economy. So very much an organic, bottom-up trade union movement. Issues of multinationals and regulation and how voice and inclusion are engaged in that. And there's colleagues in Ireland, in in Dublin and in Limerick, where we're looking at issues of union representation and collective bargaining, particularly post-austerity, how trade unions have adapted to austerity in Ireland. When you talk about voice, do you mean trade union representation or is it broader than that? Yeah, it's broader than that. I mean, union membership, um, I can't remember the exact details, 28% density, thereabouts, I guess, 30% if we're lucky. So the idea, the research aim of voice is to look at all forms of voice. That includes systems of non-union employee representation that is pretty common in American multinationals in Ireland, European works councils, works councils in Germany and other countries, as well as trade union representation, trade union consultation and collective bargaining. So VOICE is a project that tries to seek the range of mechanisms that workers have to articulate and express their voice. There's a fear in the trade union movement that some alternative models of representation in the workplace um, can undermine trade unions and can be used by employers to make a case against the need for trade unions. Is that something you've considered? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there is simply an agenda of anti-unionism, without a doubt. A lot of the sophisticated human resource management techniques, some may call them talent management these days. So many of these HRM initiatives are euphemisms for anti-unionism. At the same time, there are many organisations that are simply non-union because they've never encountered a union and the workforce have never responded in that way. They may be smaller firms. But the whole agenda of whether unions and non-unions is good or bad and and to turn it around to flip it a little bit there is also the issue that you can be critical of trade unions because there are regulations particularly at a european level the european information consultation directive we did several projects around that trade unions in ireland as much as the uk have literally vacated the regulatory space for workers around that directive and what i mean by that is the directive allows workers to have a representative, an information consultation system, which is not necessarily unionised. Trade unions have thought, well, that's a, another alternative to undermine unions. If you juxtapose that to someone like Germany or Italy, works councils in some of those countries, unions have organised around the regulation. So it's de facto union organised. Whereas in Ireland and particularly in the UK, the unions have stepped away from that regulation for fear of it undermining collective bargaining. So trade unions themselves have not tried to tackle the regulations that were there that they could have utilised strategically to their own ends. But that doesn't change the fact that there is a particular agenda of undermining collective bargaining, particularly among large multinationals. You mentioned talent management. Is it just a buzzword? It's more than a buzzword. It's an annoying word. (laughs) Um, And what I mean by an annoying word is that it creates this artificial image that talent management is something new. And if you imagine that there is something of talent which makes sense. The definitions of talent management create a dilemma where they seek to create exclusive or inclusive talent pools. And an exclusive talent pool is the mo- one of the most toxic manifestations of the work and organisational practices of today. Exclusive talent management pools managers subjectively determine and position employees into a particular position is deemed as the top talent and they're rewarded accordingly. Those who are not in this exclusive talent management pool are then penalised or even dismissed or sacked. And one of the most widespread managerial practices is often from consultancy organisations and they create what's the war for talent, a very masculine gender bias type of terminology and type of language and agenda and the war for talent is a players are rewarded and promoted b players are put on record and have to improve and c players out of the door and this is created by a managerial consultancy industry and it's packaged as something that's in the interest of the organization to create better performance the, the counter to the talent management idea is that there are many, many back office staff and back office workers that make the success of an organisation. 
They are not customer facing. So talent is highly subjective, but it discriminates in favor of those who have a direct customer interface. And it's that practice that leads to further inequalities. I've heard heard you given the example of pilots on a plane. Mm. So the example of the pilot is used by the talent management gurus or, or scholars themselves. So which is the most which is the most valued talent on a plane is the argument is it the pilot or is it the cabin crew and the talent management argument is well it's it's probably the talent it's the cabin crew they interact with customers they improve the servers they sell to passengers on the plane whereas the pilot highly qualified and skilled but at that point of skill he doesn't add any or she doesn't add any extra value to the organization so the talent argument is its cabin crew who are the selective exclusive talent pool but now juxtapose that to the type of people who are employed as cabin crew casual agency staff zero hours contracts excessive work intensification often low pay so the the reckon pace for what the organizational management say is the talent doesn't match the realities of those particular jobs it's simply a manifestation of those who can sell to the customer become the value talent why do you think a large number of millennials to use that Mm. phrase buy into that kind of ideology so again i'm not sure they buy into the ideology but what i think they do is they recognize and respond and adapt to the context in which they have to operate so this is really a manifestation of the further fragmentation of capitalism and the way neoliberal capitalist structures have evolved. So the narrative, the political narrative, the company narrative, the managerial narrative pushes everything back to the individual. It's the individual's responsibility to pay for an education, to then get a good job. It's the individual's responsibility to get themselves into a top management pool, a competitive occupation, rather than recognising that society operates as groups of collectives and society is an institution of various forms. So the the particular generation or the younger people are that you describe are responding to a context in which they find themselves in, but also in which they find themselves they have little opportunity to change. So the mobilization and the collectivization, there are plenty of examples of NGOs and community groups and union organizations in the likes of the gig economy where they're recognizing this. And even if the companies you mentioned, you look at Google, they've just had a mass walkout on gender equality issues. So the potential for collective mobilization is always an undercurrent. And this is why the narrative of neoliberal capitalism, of that individualization, is something that companies pay great deed in because it suppresses the collective countervailing power to workers, to organisations through workers' mobilisation. Is it fair to suggest that, um, say, the left and NGOs, etc., over a period of time, um, were in some way responsible for pushing the idea of individualism into society in that they talked about things like social mobility which would suggest that being working class is something to escape from and um, rather mm. than um pu- pushing the narrative that in fact you know all workers have a role to play in the economy and all people should get uh, fair pay and um, decent working conditions 
Yeah, well, the left is a highly complex terminology in itself and, and one that you might relate to Heinz beans. 57 varieties of beans and there are 57 varieties of Trotskyists, Marxists and all the rest in between. But I can recall in the 80s on on a protest to support the miners who were on strike, 1984-85, travelled down to London, protesting against the closure of pits in England, alongside miners who turned around to me and he said they hated the job. It was going down a pit, it was an awful job. And they wanted to get out of it. But what they wanted is alternatives for their community, which became desolated. They become barren lands of towns and communities. So nobody wants a bad job. But what they want to do is improve the conditions of that job. They want to have a say about it. So the, the social liberalism of mobility isn't a bad thing to move up the ladder. It's the arrangements and structures to do that in an equitable way. And it's those structures of equality and inclusion that have been absent and whether the left have been a fault or not a fault you know those in power have been a fault and those who have authority in organizations and corporations have been a fault um, you mentioned when um, workers moved away from the mines in the United Kingdom and the, the changes to the economy um, at that particular period in history. Are we seeing something similar now in terms of automation and the changing world of work and what can we expect mm. down the line? Well, there's certainly a big myth about the end of work and, you know, automation and robotics are going to take over our lives. And you open any newspaper or any particular book in university business schools in particular, it's going to say that, you know, automation and robotics are going to change everything. And there's a number of competing issues. Technology and automation has always been an issue since the Luddites. Mm. Right. So it's always been a dilemma. Technology has always displaced jobs. Technology has always taken jobs away if if you were a printer or a journalist if you were speaking to someone from the NUM sorry the NUJ uh, the National Union of Journalists and you go back to whopping in the 80s Murdoch simply replaced a whole industry of printers of journalists with technology now that was a massive land sweep change using automation but if we look more holistically at the idea of automation and robotics and how it's changing the world of work, there are certainly debates and certainly challenges. But the reality is that organisations do not really utilise the technology that they could do. So you might envision a gig economy um, platform, digital labour platforms, the whole changing nature of work from robotics and manufacturing, displacing jobs. But the truth is that employers rely on cheap labour. They locate to certain parts of the globe. The nature of supply chain networks for multinational corporations relies on a particular use of labour and people. And the use of technology is not that great or extensive. Technology often fails. It doesn't deliver what it seeks to deliver. So the digitalization of everyday life, my iPhone, my iPod are encroaching upon my day-to-day -day space. I get messages from work at different times of the day. So technology is not being used as a social end. It's being used as a further intensification of profit maximization. And that often requires the use of cheap labour.
And if you look at Amazon, you look at these large warehouses, the interface between technology and people, the technology is used to monitor people. It's used to intensify the work of humans. So we don't have a social structure or a society that decides to discuss the social value of technology to replace you know bad jobs difficult jobs that job down the mine or those unpleasant jobs with the use of technology and free up so one of the one of the outcomes of one of the debates of this is the notion of a four day week so that's recently been mentioned in uh, in Ireland from the Labour Party about the idea of a four-day week is the same the TUC in the UK. So use the arguments of a four-day week, no loss of pay, increase social time, more leisure time, and have a society that's more productive through the use of technology rather than technology that intensifies work and increases profit and surplus value for corporations. The use of technology is... It, it, it is something to be resisted in the sense that it damages society if it's not used in a particular way to benefit all. So the notion of resisting technology is really about resisting the, the choices of technology and the decision-making powers to use technology, where it's used and when it's used, as opposed to the technical interface itself. I don't know what the average type of car is that your SIP2 listeners drive. But I do wonder whether they do go to an automated car wash or a hand car wash. And I would bet it's probably mostly a hand car wash if they don't do it themselves. And I would further bet that that hand car wash somewhere in the outer ring road of Dublin or wherever it might be is probably manned by migrant labour. So the use of technology, the use of low-pay labour, the issues of migration and labour flows are all interconnected. It's probably that there is a generation that is capable and able to change things for the future. So if there was a, an area of future challenges, it's not so much do A, B and C, but there might be three broad conceptual developments to connect with in terms of union organising in the future. One is that despite the old terminology, th things about class matter. Those who earn and there are those who own. Those who are agents of owners have a particular degree of power and these are all competing interests. So the challenge is that there are debates and disagreements and resistance and tensions and it's it's mediating all of those but they are often around class-based structures there are other ideas or conceptual debates about territorial injustice so there are concentrations of wealth and concentrations of inequality around the globe and unions have a particular role to play in how they address them the third area is perhaps a propaganda narrative so unions no longer fight in mass male-dominated manufacturing industries, but what they, are all, what they are relevant to is a younger generation in a fragmented labour market, and how unions connect with those is a particular debate and a particular challenge. One thing I'm often reminded of is 
Greenspan in the US is proud to say that one of the measures of success for the, U- the US economy has been the gap between high and low earners, and that's grown wider and wider. And he sees that as a success. In Ireland, McCreevy was proud to be known as a deregulation engineer. These are narratives that trade unions have a part to play in changing. <laughs>